Good evening. Welcome to Enoch Pratt Free Library. My name is Vivian Fisher, and I manage the African American Department at, at the Central Library here. This evening, it is my pleasure to introduce our speaker, Maggie Anderson, who will talk about her book, Our Black Year, One Family's Quest to Buy Black in America's Racially Divided Economy. As CEO and co-founder of the Empowerment Experiment Foundation, Maggie Anderson has become the leader of a self-help economics movement that supports quality black businesses and urges consumers, especially other middle and upper class African Americans, to proactively and publicly support them. She is CEO and co-founder of the Empowerment Experiment Foundation, and she has become this leader in this economic empowerment movement. She received her JD and MBA from the University of Chicago. So it's my pleasure to introduce her. Good evening. <laughs> I snuck up on y'all. <laughs> Thank you so much, all of you, for coming out on this beautiful evening to talk about our black year and the empowerment experiment. I'm just honored and delighted to be here with you tonight and present the Empowerment Experiment, our historic journey, living off black businesses and the story behind our acclaimed book, Our Black Year. I'm excited to be here at this precious treasure we call the Enoch Pratt Free Library. I've been welcomed warmly and lovingly to this city since the three years ago when I started this journey. I don't have too much time and I know that we're gonna have some questions afterwards, so I'm not gonna tell you too much more about what we did. You know that we're an overly credentialed, professional, suburban couple from Oak Park, Apple Pie, Illinois. Two little girls, we decided to take a public stand to completely live off black businesses for an entire year in honor of our business owners and our economically deprived neighborhoods. And in order to study and prove the power of self-help economics in the African American community. You know our journey dominated headlines, front pages of Chicago Tribune, LA Times, major segments on CNN, CBS, MSNBC, Fox News, ABC News, C-SPAN, PBS, countless other radio shows, print media, and blogs. So I'm an activist now. I'm activist author Maggie Anderson now. I'm some kind of leader now, a celebrity. I'm taking calls from Diane Sawyer in the White House and everyone in between about this new modern day version of the civil rights movement. But honestly, we're just a couple of naive and nerdy, bougie black nerds. My husband, John, he's a finance guy. He worked his way from Detroit to Harvard, earned his MBA at Kellogg. I'm the daughter of Cuban immigrants who came here with nothing. I grew up in drug-infested Liberty City, Miami, made it to Emory University, worked as an aide to Congressman John Lewis and a speechwriter for the mayor of Atlanta and the governor of Georgia. Then I went to the University of Chicago for my MBA and my law degree, where I learned constitutional law from the President of the United States of America. We fell in love while we were both in graduate school. John and I, not the <laughs> President and I. <laughs> um, John and I bought a home in a nice suburb and had two beautiful little girls and were living out our American dream story. We had the perfect life. So what really made, motivated us to make this kind of sacrifice to basically give all that up and dedicate our lives to these important issues, the why don't black folk support each other issue, the is buying black racist issue, the why are black businesses failing while Asian and Middle Eastern and ethnic European and Hispanic businesses are flourishing and right in our own neighborhoods issue. The why are we bragging so much about $1 trillion in buying power and we have nothing to show for it issue? Head on and do so for everyone to see. Why did we invite this cruel world into our perfect little life? And really, what kind of difference can one couple make? That's just the way it is, right? Black folk don't support each other. There's never going to be an awesome American story like a Walmart or Quick Trip or Enterprise Rent-A-Car or Hilton or Mars. Sears, Toys R Us, Neiman Marcus, Hallmark, Dollar General, coming from a black family. These are all privately held companies, or now publicly held, where the original family retains most of the ownership. 
companies started by entrepreneurs, no more talented than the unsung heroes I support every day, no smarter than most of you, now passing on intergenerational wealth, property, security, traditions, investing in their neighborhoods, causes, political groups, candidates, recycling their riches, funding their school systems, offering role models in the dream of entrepreneurship to their kids. That's what those families are doing. When we've been here 400 years, when are some of those families going to be black? And we wondered, why doesn't anyone talk about that? We wondered about that in 2008 as we watched my law school professor, my husband's hooping buddy from Harvard, a dorky guy who lived around the corner in Chicago, become the president of the United States. We loved it seeing Professor Barry become President Obama. Now our children know that someone who looks like them can be president. But we still thought about the fact that black kids can go their whole young lives and never encounter a business owner who looks like them. And how for every other American child, regardless of race or background, that essential encounter is a part of everyday life. Everyone knows that's true. And everyone also knows it wasn't like that before. Our neighborhood kids had grocery stores and fresh marts and dry cleaners and department stores and drug stores owned by local entrepreneurs, just like in every other community. We had hotel and grocery chains, insurance companies and banks, manufacturing plants, cosmetics companies, steel mills, and large farms. They're gone now. All that's gone. And that's why we live at the bottom. That's the reason our youth can't find local role models, why our mothers and fathers and brothers and sisters can't find jobs, why our schools, parks, and community programs are underfunded, and businesses and economic centers in our areas are not vibrant and beautiful like they used to be. It's the system, and it works well, and there's nothing illegal about it. It may feel racist. It may hurt like racism. Some racists, I'm sure, enjoy the way it's all played out. But it's no one's fault but our own. And what's worse, we didn't even seem to care about it anymore. Well, we cared. John and Maggie from Oak Park, Apple Pie, Illinois, cared. We wanted our little girls to know that not only can they work at Sears, that was the 50s and 60s, that they can buy at Sears, we fought for that. They need to know that they can own Sears. And at a minimum, the Sears should be willing to stock and sell their products. That part, that's still an elusive dream to our kids, just like the dream of America electing an African-American president was a distant dream to us until we did something about it and made that dream come true. So instead of just caring and shaking our heads, we did something. We didn't know what would happen. We didn't know how you'd respond. But we did something fearful, frustrated, just like our elders and ancestors were when they did something. We thought about how silly and scared our ancestors must have felt those days when they walked to work at the risk of losing their jobs and lives as perfectly functioning and available Montgomery buses passed right by just because they didn't want to sit in the back. They marched for 385 days straight, just over a year, using their economic might to cure their social problems. The goal of this experiment was to make us all remember when that sense of unity and activism and shared destiny permeated our culture and everyday life. Our experiment was about those ancestors who died in the fields and factories, working and slaving, building up other families' riches and industries that still exist today, about our people then being freed to get lynched, raped, shot at, and jailed, and their homes and businesses torched for daring to do what those fantastic and forever struggling entrepreneurs right here in Baltimore do. Like Keith Matthews, owner of your local Comprotex, a fine national tax prep and accounting firm. Your neighbor trying to contribute to the local economy here, who you walk right by as you do your best to make sure that Liberty Tax and H&R Block stay afloat. We wanted you to remember those folks who were murdered so that Keith Matthews can do what they died doing. Just set up shop, offer the community a good or service, and expect to be valued and supported. 
all that just so that black kids too should have the opportunity to be business owners and business leaders, not just good employees. They went through all that so they can own businesses, create jobs, and contribute more to our legacy as a people and our nation. We've forgotten about that, about them and what they struggled for and everything they achieved. We forgot that our noble Dr. King was fighting for economic empowerment too. Here's a quote from him, and this is the one you probably got to dig a few books, check out a few books at the Pratt Library to find. In a public address almost 44 years ago, Dr. King said, we've got to strengthen black institutions. I call upon you to take your money out of the banks downtown and deposit your money into Tri-State Bank. We want a bank in movement in Memphis. We're just telling you to do what we're doing. Put your money there. You have six or seven black insurance companies in Memphis. Take out your insurance there. We want to have an insurance in. He said that. This experiment asks you to remember that. And two things I want to really sink in. Number one, he said this in Memphis, where he was assassinated. He said this the day before he was murdered on April 4th. He said it, then they killed him. Number two, he referenced six or seven insurance companies, not brokers, companies in Memphis. Again, 1968. You know we don't have one now? Not one insurer in the whole country? Not one property and casualty insurer. You can find a broker. We do, thank God, have Atlanta Life and a couple of other burial insurance companies, not life insurance. They sell $10,000 policies. We have a couple of those. Black health insurer, property insurer, the real money? Nope. But we did 40 years ago. I don't know if you understand what I just said. He died telling us to support these businesses, very specific, so that we could build up our community. We did it. They don't exist now. So I ask you, ladies and gentlemen, black and not as Americans, I ask you, how does that make you feel? Does it make you think about how still very racially divided our economy is 44 years later and wonder what you can do to make sure that black businesses and neighborhoods prosper too? Or are you now thinking that Dr. King was some kind of closet militant racist secretly plotting to destroy white banks and insurance companies? For most African Americans, the value, morality, and the mission of the empowerment experiment in our black year is obvious. But for some outside our community, they criticize it. They despise it. And while I will not busy myself educating those who have no genuine concern for the disproportionate suffering in my community, those who would not be impressed or who would be threatened by the vision of black Wall Streets we had in Tulsa, and o Tulsa Oklahoma, and Durham, North Carolina, where we created and circulated hundreds of millions in the early 20th century with our professionals and teachers and bankers and doctors, retailers. While I'm really just not concerned with those who would not smile when they learned that in those places, unemployment was statistically insignificant and our wealth circulated in and empowered those neighborhoods for decades. While I won't waste one minute trying to explain why that kind of economic power and that recycling of our wealth is needed now and could help all of America realize its promise. Well, I should not have to lull anyone who has seen what's going on in my community, who has seen what's going on right here in Baltimore, even with an African-American president, lull them into accepting the logic that black people's political rights, our very liberty, is impotent and futile until our economic rights and freedoms are just as aggressively pursued and exercised. While it's quite perplexing why I would have to show anyone how absolutely criminal it is for black people to have $1 trillion in buying power, yet close to one in three of us live in poverty. The average wealth of white households is now over 40 times that of blacks. While I should not be the only one sickened by the fact that over 50%, and this is a conservative estimate from Wall Street Journal, over 50% of Hennessy's global market share comes from black people in the United States. Hennessy is global. Japan, everywhere. Everyone's drinking Hennessy. Their, whole, their company is wholly dependent on our market to survive, but they don't even have a supplier diversity program, meaning they don't have a mission statement, some black folk on the website, 
much less a mandate or corporate practice to do business with us. While I'm vilified for asking consumers who are troubled by their community's poor economic footing to instead spend their money with a black-owned cognac company who employs in the community, does business in the community, fights for the few black-owned liquor stores and wine shops we do have, and while they still face unfair, utterly racist treatment from the close-knit liquor and hospitality industries, while defending the need for self-help economics in my community, trying to explain why we have the inalienable right to proactively and publicly support our own, just like our Jewish friends, the Asian people, Hispanics, Middle Easterners, and other ethnic Europeans like Greeks and Italians do, and being called a radical, a Nazi, or the other very popular N-word for doing so, while all that is a self-imposed burden that I gladly endure. I do, however, respect and cherish the honor to educate, enlighten, and inspire that I earned in this journey. And I gladly uphold that honor today, hoping that you'll meet me with an open heart, a free mind, and acceptance of some tough truth, and a sincere belief in the possibility of a truly integrated American economy and economic empowerment for all Americans. So before I get into a couple more things about what we learned and why I believe this movement to support black business owners in the community and as partners in corporate America is the key to a stronger black community and a stronger country, let's discuss this concern I know some of you have about buying black or practicing self-help economics or conscious consumerism is racist. How are we the racists when in 2012, the era of our first black president, Every other group can open up shop and find business success in the black community. But no one is supporting our businesses. In our black year, I ask, why doesn't anyone call that racism? That our consumer should enable everyone else's prosperity while we suffer. That's okay. But we're racist for seeking and supporting black-owned businesses like Mr. Matthews and his tax firm. So honestly, we could be crying racism too when we look at what's going on in our neighborhoods, but we don't. Our black year just says we spend so much money. Would it be all right for us to put a little bit more than 2% of that money, of that trillion dollars, back into some black entrepreneurs' hands so they can start dominating a couple of niche markets and they can grow too and maybe create some jobs along the way, restore a little communal pride? curb a little crime, give a few kids some alternatives to gangs and drugs? How are we going to do that without supporting Keith Matthews and his tax firm? Without a thousand more Keiths? What, another government program? We're not saying black America versus white America or anyone else. The empowerment experiment said, and our black year says, we're America too. And America has not lived up to its ideal until the black community plays a better role in this economy. We can't just be the consumers, the employees. We are owners. We're patriotic, hardworking, taxpaying Americans, and we too are worthy of support. I tell people to try to support black businesses because they are, by far, no question, the greatest private employer of black people. And black unemployment is, by far, no question, three, four, five times that of whites, and the worst, by far, of any ethnic group. These are facts, but people just gloss over that. Like creating jobs for the, chronically, for the most chronically unemployed Americans is not a patriotic principle we all should get behind. That's why I love and inspire support for black entrepreneurs and black franchises and black suppliers and buy black products. That's why I'm a conscious consumer, not because I hate white people. That's absurd. If they were employing black people or putting quality black businesses in my neighborhoods or supporting my businesses and theirs, I'd be the first one to support them too, waiting outside for the doors to open. But they're not, and we all know they're not. And what's worse is that even though all of this is true and manifests in dead and jailed black kids, for some reason we're too afraid to even talk about business empowerment and economic empowerment in the black community. Someone had to initiate this conversation, I guess with our black year 
and our experiment success in injecting this conversation into the mainstream. I guess that's going to be me. God blessed me with this voice that I have in Our Black Here. The book about the experiment is not just a detailed account, a painful account of our journey. It's a treatise on the history of black business in America, the struggle, unity, and perseverance that led to all that success, and the racism, exploitation, and lack of consumer and corporate support that has led to their demise, as well as the resultant and steady siphoning of our community's wealth. Our Black Year also presents solutions, a call to action, that can bring some of those businesses back and defy the racial divisions and disparities that exist in our neighborhoods, within corporate America, and the economy as a whole. Titans of business from George Frazier, Kathy Hughes, owner of Radio One right here in Baltimore, I mean in Maryland, Mark Morial, CEO of National Urban League, they all endorse our Black Year, along with mainstream reviewers, Publishers Weekly, who called this issue, the lack of support of black businesses, a dynamite subject, and this exploration historic and effective. Library Journal, one of the largest, most respected literary reviews, said that this book illuminates the roadblocks faced by black business owners and the racial divide that continues to persist in the U.S. economy. The book is for anyone looking for inspiration to affect positive change in their communities. But our black year is still much more than that. For the most part, it's a painful glimpse into everything we are as a people and everything that we're not. What I learned in this journey is that some of the folks we have in this room, accomplished professionals, entrepreneurs, executives, some of our people's most educated and polished and connected, what we are represents the best in us and the worst in us. I know all of you are smart enough, enlightened enough to know that this dream my family has is right and even plausible. I also know that you didn't need this experiment, the landmark study that it created, or this wonderful book to show you that. But even with all that, I know that most of you wouldn't dare do what we did. I know that the overwhelming majority of you never take the time to make a call or two to your Baltimore Black Chamber or your local Urban League or check on Facebook for a black business or professional when you need something, just like everyone else and every other ethnic group does even though that you know that black businesses create the jobs that Baltimore needs. But you shake your head when you drive through our economically deprived neighborhoods, and you roll your eyes at the listless unemployed, young people with no direction. You get sad when you see the boarded up homes and barred up businesses and the dirt and the graffiti. I know that some of you even attain a sense of worth and accomplishment from the fact that you can afford nice vacations and nice automobiles and live in pristine suburbs. I know I did. But you have to consider reconciling all of that wealth with the debt you have to your community. Put some of that money in a black bank. Buy your next car from a black dealer. Make sure you have a black insurance broker, financial advisor. Stay at a black-owned hotel or a B&B on those vacations. Put some of those investments in Ariel, our very successful and large black-owned investment firm. You won't even acknowledge that your achievements come with a duty to support your community. In the past, we cared for them and tried to counter the circumstances that suffocate them. My problem is not with them. It's frustrating and humiliating when our people perpetuate negative stereotypes and our businesses are subpar. They disrespect the beauty and the strength of our past. It makes me want to scream. But nothing's compared to the torment and degradation I feel trying to get folks just like me, just like you, to care about them and to fight for them with the money and the businesses we already have. So please don't tell me that you don't have time, that you're scared, or that you can't find a business. Our stand, our black year, is a reminder that we've never answered exploitation or despair with it's too hard. Or worse, I got mine, get yours. I know that's not who we are. I know that wasn't the plan. That's why our ancestors and elders died. Is that what they wanted for me, for our people? So I can have nice things and not have the duty to look out for my sister, not have to support my brother who's a role model to my children, not have to make sure those businesses who take my money also respect and reinvest in my community, 
We say no, not anymore. It's not enough to live nice. We want that Oak Park life, but we'll throw it away if it means that we can't defend what's right. In the 1930s, grocery stores represented the largest category of black-owned businesses. We had 6,400. At the beginning of the 21st century, there were only 19 black-owned grocery stores in the United States of America. When those researchers at Northwestern University's Kellogg did the famous study based on our experiment, they could only find evidence of three full-service groceries owned by black families in this country. There are 28 Hispanic-owned grocery chains with 10 to 100 units. Most of them have popped up in the past 10 years. Who's shopping at those stores? Who enabled that growth? Whose products stock the shelves? And who's getting jobs at those stores? Who's getting sent to college off that money? Hispanic consumers, Hispanic businesses, Hispanic employees, Hispanic children. Nothing's wrong with that. Good for them. They're being accountable for their community. And we can do the same. In that same study conducted by Northwestern's Kellogg, we showed that in the, out of the close to $1 trillion we have in buying power, maybe 3% of that goes back to black-owned businesses. Then the study showed that if black households with household incomes like mine, $75,000 or more, were to redirect their spending with our own from 3% to 10%, we could create close to 1 million jobs in our communities. The president is trying to get his props for bringing 3 million jobs over four years, backed with billions in stimulus dollars. We can create a million jobs, all of them created by the businesses in our community, with the money we already have and spend, with the businesses like the dry cleaner I left 10 minutes earlier to get to today on my way to the airport, businesses we already have. Spend a little more with them, and we, middle and upper class consumers, can rescue the community the way Dr. King wanted us to. Applause. One million jobs. Not for me. It's right there in the book. It's right there in black and white. So please don't tell me we can't do it. We know we can. We built nations and empires, schools and democracies. We invented industries, revolutionary products. We're the originators of the fascinating, most fascinating culture. We've endured and conquered slavery, rape, and Jim Crow. So please let's stop talking about what we did and what we used to have. It takes too doggone long. We need a straight-up economic upheaval in our community, and there's two places where it can happen. In the neighborhoods, the storefronts, the banks, through the professionals we engage, like Keith and Comprotax and within corporate America, through its supply chains, vendors, dealers, and franchises. When you go to your black-owned McDonald's or buy my paper, South Coast paper, from Office Max, corporate America has a lot of our money, too. A big hunk of that trillion dollars goes to corporate firms. We need to bring some of that back home through our businesses. We're not going to get anywhere unless we start thinking about where our money goes and holding corporations accountable for their promise and duty to reciprocate our unyielding loyalty with some real investments in our community. And I'm not talking about a couple of black managers and directors, a couple of jobs, or a table or two at the NAACP conference. I'm saying I don't understand why the greatest economic achievement we can tout as a community is how wealthy, educated, and prosperous we keep the Hennessy, Toys R Us, and Polo families, instead of how we compelled those families to engage us, not with cute commercials played on stations we don't even own, created by ad agencies we don't even own, engage us through our businesses. We must, if we care about these broken families and our deprived neighborhoods, tell these corporations that would shut down tomorrow without your support, that we want to see representative numbers of our franchises, our inputs in the supply chains, our products on the shelves. I come from a Cuban family. My parents barely spoke English. My pediatrician was Dr. Marti, my dentist was Dr. Leon. We bought our cars from Gus Machado Chevrolet. My quinceanera was held at Munoz Banquet Hall. I'm a proud Cuban African American and want to see all struggling minority communities do better. But remember, 
Asians recycle their dollar for up to 28 days before it goes to outsiders. No one yells at them. Hispanics, a week. Our Jewish friends, 21 days. And that's why there are Asian-owned banks, law firms, grocery stores, employing from the community, investing in their community. That's why there are Hispanic-owned grocery stores, whole sections in the mainstream grocery stores with dozens of Hispanic-made products on the shelves, furniture stores, bakeries, dollar stores, dress shops owned by local Hispanics in their community. That's why. Those kids have a chance to see local business owners who look like them. And those families want to take care of those businesses, and those businesses want to take care of the neighborhood. Black people keep their dollar for six hours before it goes to Chinese, Korean, Hispanic, Greek, Italian, Jewish, Middle Eastern business owners who come into our community every day, unlock the steel gate, take our money all day through the bulletproof grass, and then at the end of the day, put the steel door back down, put the padlock on, the deadbolt on on top of that, and drive home to their suburbs and enclaves with well-to-do school systems funded by your hard-earned wealth. Black neighborhoods don't have the banks and the grocers and furniture stores and convenience stores. And those disparities also exist in the corporate and government spaces. So let's just respect those facts and be open about it. If we can't do that tonight, then why am I here? Then why are you here? Why do we even have this forum? Why do we have the Pratt at all if we can't talk about this kind of stuff here? I want us to be honest as we convene at this historic and legendary Pratt commemorating the founders' ideals of opportunity and fairness and equality. I want us to be ready for the possibilities the Pratt and hosting our black year tonight gives us today. We have to be able to have real talk about racism, race, and the American economy. Examine why in reality my businesses are not growing, my consumers are getting disrespected, and my starving neighborhoods are getting exploited. I'm ready to have that conversation, if you are. My family decided to do this not because we are seeking the anguish of denying our baby girls the basics, like shoes and toys, fresh meat and produce, as we tried to defend a concept that they were too young to understand. Imagine the anguish I felt when I had to tell them no, not because we couldn't afford something or because they didn't deserve it, but because we're defending a premise they would never get and that we'd probably lose in the struggle defending. But I put them through it because I love them. And because God loves me, he gave me the strength to do it. And that's how much I love you. I love you. That's why I'm asking you to make some sacrifices, just like my girls did, to take on these challenges and see things differently. I want you to feel a little pain, too, to go through the sacrifice and try something, even though the odds are against you, so that you can come out stronger, smarter, better, and we can prove the world wrong about us and about this country so we can all create a better America Dr. King's America, which includes strong black institutions, too. An America with a black neighborhood is not the only place where all other groups and majority enterprises can set up shop and achieve the American dream. An America where there's some reciprocity for that. An America with all kinds of people shopping at a retailer or a grocer started by a black family. How would that be? Supporting our franchises, depending on our industries and professionals, banking with us, staying in our hotels, just like we do everyone else. In America, where it's not a ridiculous notion to a black child that someone like him or her can own a grocery chain or a drugstore, that the toaster he buys at Walmart was made by a black family company. In America, where a talented student coming out of Howard or Boy State or Georgetown who wants to be successful in corporate America and is being recruited by Johnson & Johnson or S.C. Johnson, a family company, in America where maybe he might just think maybe that Johnson is a black family. I'm proud that we lived off black businesses. I'm blessed 
that we had the opportunity and wisdom to see it through, that we spent over $90,000 that we would not have with our businesses. We're disappointed by the number of markets and industries where we suffer from a lack of representation, disheartened by our own people's lack of pride and solidarity. Our hearts ached seeing up close what our people have to go through in these retail and food deserts, forced to settle for inferior goods and service, enduring disrespect daily from owners who won't live with us, won't even hire us, but use our money to send their kids to college and pay for dream vacations. It was painful hearing the stories of these quality entrepreneurs who do everything right, work hard, and can't get their own people to lift them up. Still, even with all that, I gave up much more than most of you realized during this experiment. My mother never graduated high school. She was just a Cuban farm girl. She barely knew English. She was here for 40 years and never even learned how to drive. And she was the bravest, most intelligent woman I will ever know. She taught me to fight for what's right and to never forget who I am and where I came from. She also taught me that our being from Cuba didn't make us any less black than my friends in Liberty City, Miami, Soweto, or Jackson, Mississippi. She explained to me that Cubans were slaves too, that our ancestors' slave ships were just dropped off a little earlier in the slave trade, while my people were forced to shuck sugarcane under the Spaniards to build up the rum industry with their lives and their labor. Their sisters and brothers are right here in the States, forced to pick cotton by a different European oppressor, the British, to establish the clothing industry from their slog and sweat. This is what Mima showed me when she put me to bed at night after taking two buses home from shrimp peel and a fish filleting in that cold, dank seafood processing factory she worked at 12 hours, seven days a week. This is where the empowerment experiment comes from, a little fiery Cuban lady named Luisa Maria Palacios. My mother was diagnosed with pancreatic cancer in late 2008. We did our experiment in 2009. Yes, that means that throughout the journey, coming up with the idea, planning it, building a team, raising money, doing all the research, all the meetings, calls, speeches, interviews, trips, doing the experiment, through all that, my mother was dying, painfully wasting away. Our experiment was the last year of her life, our black year. And now that Mima's not with me anymore, I spend many days and nights wondering, was it worth it? Those precious minutes that I could have been with her, taking care of her, feeding her, helping Papa, kissing her, giving her ice chips. I wonder, did I waste the last year of Mima's life taking a stand about a situation that simply cannot be penetrated, that would never change, and not because the man has his foot on our necks, but mostly because no matter what I did, our people just aren't ready to support each other. Now that she's gone, I ask God that every day. And today, God answered me by sending all of you here tonight. So maybe it was worth it. Maybe we can have an honest conversation about what's going on in our community. So for that, I say thank you. I know I've been yelling at you today, and if Mima taught me one thing, it's when to shut up and be graceful and say thank you. So thank you, all of you. Thank you, Judy. Where's Judy? My best friend here, and she's not here. Thank you, Judy and Teresa and the rest of the in our prop, uh, library family for letting me share our work with Baltimore. And thank you, Dr. Hayden, for your leadership and your commitment to the community. I love you, and I thank you, and I'm ready to take your questions. Thank you so much. Are we doing on time before we start, Teresa? I know I may have gone a little long. First, for question and answer, and then we, okay, okay. Any questions? I'll start with you, Miss. Thank you. When I heard the specific of the, the six hour turnaround time, I was probably like a bucket of cold water trying to get it. But you mentioned that um, it's a system. That's what you wanted to say mm -hmm. earlier. And I wasn't sure if you were just using that sort of a, as a, a kind of a secretary cold way or something, or you were pointing out that.
We go through the whole perfect storm in the book, and it is a perfect storm. Um, there's a bunch of things that uh, happened, a confluence of events, and then other things contributed to that. Um, and first to address, when I say system, I am being satirical. I, like I said, I am a speechwriter. I'm very, I have a little license with the pen. I don't think that the capitalistic system was designed to keep our people as the underclass. We as ourselves, uh, we haven't flexed our economic might and used what we can in the system to do better um, for our community. So that's what I mean when I say it's a system. But um, I'll give you the, the short version. We were forced to build up our own enterprises. Um, we were not allowed to support anyone else's. So we had inherent automatic demand for our businesses. It was never an issue of whether we're smart and had the ingenuity or, or the resources to create businesses, that's always been uh, static. That exists now. But we also had the demand. So that helped our businesses grow and our communities prospered and it also reinforced that sense of pride in our own because we were happy to be able to be self-sustaining. So that's where we were. Then um, integration came. Love integration, we, we're free, we're integrated, that's wonderful, but it did have several adverse impacts on our community. So the, the first wave in that perfect storm came from the consumers. The businesses stayed there, but the consumers, and it was just so unintentional, in our way of saying, we're going to show you Woolworth for not letting us uh, uh, sit at your counters before. We'll show you, we'll give you a whole bunch of our money so that we can show you that our green is just as good as everyone else's green. So we'll show you, ha. Huh? And in so doing, we abandoned our local uh, businesses, our would-be Woolworths, had we um, sustained them. So that was kind of the first step. A lot of our consumers rushed in droves to support those businesses. The second piece was um, the, the uh, upper and middle classes uh, flight from the community, and a flight from the businesses. So the, the first thing was that we left the community, and uh, while we're in the community, we love we love this opportunity to go shopping downtown. So we even when we stayed in the community, we left the community to shop. Then when we left the community, we shopped in those new places where we lived. So the the first the businesses were abandoned, then our our dollars exited the the communities that they used to sustain. Then we come my generation, my wave. So we're talking 70s, 80s. Um, so the corporations started to see that here's this community that loves to spend and, is, and loves to spend outside their community. So they started to market to us, and that was really exciting. Colored on is what we used to say. We're so excited to see black commercials. So they started to market to us to get more of the black consumer dollar. We responded to that with our loyalty, and we started supporting the big brands and designers that we um, still, and corporations that we still support today. Then those corporations uh, started to think, wow, if we, could, uh, we can get more of their loyalty if we recruit their best talent. So first they took the money, and then they took the down. So when I was coming up, you see a little spark in a child. You see a child that's, that's going to do well in school. The dream of the community, of big mama and mama and everyone in the community, is for you to get a great job at a big white company. Not the way it is in other ethnic groups where you would follow in the family business or become an entrepreneur or something like that. The whole purpose of Little Maggie's was to get a good job. So our best talent, if you will, went straight to corporate. So that was the next wave. So we lost the, the, the uh, we abandoned our businesses, we left the community, we went shopping outside of the community, Those, the big mainstream firms started to market to us, we responded with our loyalty, and then we, we lost the talent too, just one, two, three, four, five. Then the last big wave is in the 80s, and they talked about this a lot and do the right thing, and um, I'm not sure if it was Menace or Boys in the Hood, which one, the LA movie, that, that showed the, the immigrant influx into our community. So they noticed the same phenomenon. It's like, hey, I'm just trying to make a buck, trying to get the American dream, and here's this open market that just loves to support to go outside of their community. So we're going to set up shop right there 
and, um, and make our business success. And then they started to not just uh, dominate in the retail space, and they went backwards into, into the supply chains. So now it's almost impossible for us to take some of those industries back that used to be ours in our communities because they, we've, it's just become uh, practice now for, let's say, Koreans, let's just be honest here, who have taken over the black hair industry. So we, we lost that fight too. So now we are in this place where most of your top talent, if you will, is in corporate. Um, a lot of the big money that we have is outside of the community or we spend it outside of the community. And it, now because those businesses suffered, um, there started to grow a negative stereotype about black businesses that our businesses are inferior. And a lot of them were because we weren't supporting them. They weren't competitive. They couldn't get any support, all kinds of racism and trying to get loans and funding, no mentoring, all that kind of stuff. So it's tough to be a black business owner. But instead of trying to lift those few businesses up, we started to perpetuate the negative stereotype in our own community, no one from the outside. We started to grow this theory, white man's ice is colder. So if you have a black business and you have a white business, you go to the white business because, of course, the black business products has to be inferior. And even with folks like me, it kind of just became a burden or you know, a, a favor to support, a, okay, for, I'll get a black clown for so-and-so's party or I'll go to a black dealer this time. You know, you, you act like you're doing something. Where in every other uh, ethnicity, it's, it's like air, it's like breathing. Um, so all of those things happen and it's just an amazing confluence of events because we also show that had some of those things not happened, um, and none of those things are as bad as, you know, Jim Crow or anything like that. But had those things not happened, we would have had our black cosmetics companies would have been L'Oreal. We would have had a Hilton, a Marriott. We, we were right on the cusp, right there, same, neck and neck with those institutions at that time. And then we fell off. We could have had those great American institutions right now. We could have had a McDonald's. We had those kind of fast food chains and all that already and we let it go. Not to say that we can't bring it back, um, but that's the, and I tried to be short, but that's basically what happened. We go into it with a lot more detail in the book. Uh, I think you asked the question first, sir. Uh, yeah, um, I haven't read your book yet. Okay. I will get it, uh, not too late, I will get it. That's fine. Um, I was, uh, it seems that there's some, and I don't know, maybe you did cover it in your book, uh, that there's some other issues that, um, uh, are uh, important to this understanding uh, in terms of a lack of black consumer support for black businesses. But in my experience, because I only deal with black businesses, I've seen black businesses sold to, to outsiders, sold to Koreans, and, and, I'm, and I'm not just talking about the little mom and pop stores. You got some big companies like Johnson Products, mm -hmm. which, which, which But yes. the question is, are black businesses supporting black communities mm -hmm. as well? And, and, and that's something I've paid a lot more attention to lately now that I'm not doing the experiment and I'm just trying to further the movement. I mean, just I, I was heartbroken when Magic Johnson sold his Starbucks. And I was like, well, you know, what was the point? What was the point of building up all these wonderful coffee houses and having them be black owned and talk, being all over the news and saying that you want to employ from the community if you made all the money and now you're just going to sell it. At some point, we need those folks who we do support to have some ownership and let us retain some of our, um, some of our institutions. So it's not, and I'm very, I try to be very careful when I say that. I, and first of all, I won't just say just support somebody because they look like us. I'm talking about those entrepreneurs who do reinvest in the community and employ in the community. Um, but that, that has been a major issue too. I don't do this just so that we can create a new class of black millionaires, although we really do need that, if those black millionaires aren't doing their part to reinvest. And that is a huge problem because although they can leverage the misery that's in our community and our hunger for empowerment by starting those institutions, of course BET was successful because we're like, we could never do something like BET, but if you're gonna do that, 
just so that you can flip it and, and retain your individual wealth, then yes, that is a huge problem. What we're hoping for is, we've seen that happen with a lot of moguls, but there are, and I find this in my journey, a lot of these medium-sized businesses that do believe in the message of the experiment, but they've just never even tapped into or, or believed that this kind of thing, consumer mobilization, are talking about this, are wanting to support our own, that consumers will actually go out there and look for it. They never even conceived that something like that could happen. So the whole job now is to kind of match up those two. We're mobilizing the consumers who care and those businesses who care. We can't get everyone to do it. And unfortunately, a lot of our moguls are not doing nearly enough. And they are out for self. But there are enough of those up and comings. And there are folks like Ariel like that, I'm, uh, that I mentioned earlier, our, um, our mutual fund firm, our investment firm, that they're not going anywhere. And they do it so that one day there can be a major black firm on Wall Street. Um, so that, that's, that, there's no good answer for it, but that is an issue. You are definitely right. It is just as big an issue as a lack of consumer support. Yeah, one other issue is the black church. We, um, there are some really large churches that don't put their money back into black banks or black, back in black news. Some of the homeless could be, you know, churches could convert whole sections of abandoned houses into livable, but Yes, and uh, not, it's more of an observation now uh, than anything. And we, we talk about, in the book, the, the church's role in lifting us up before, and they have kind of followed suit and not done it as much now. But again, in this experiment, we are finding those churches who are, but my community bank that you saw in the video um, is run by the local church. So there are churches who are economic activists and Putting all their, my dry cleaner, the, uh, my church is like their, their biggest client. It would be dead if it wasn't for that church. So we do see examples of our church being activists in um, economics as well. So a lot of our churches are starting to have directories of the business owners within their own church. That's the kind of stuff that we try to lift up and organize in the experiment. And we need to raise money for this to be, we need something just as organized and with the same kind of infrastructure as NAACP, but totally devoted to those issues. And then we can we can mobilize everyone. And we got a ton of other questions. I'm sorry. Go on ahead, sir. I did purchase your book, if you recall. I remember you. Yes. Okay. <laughs> That's true, and, and, and I don't. Were you at Fraser Yes, I was. Yes, I, I, I was there. I was there too. I remember you. Yes. Okay. Right. Oh, that's right. Okay, that's where we got it from. Okay. Yes, but we. I remember that discussion too. And I do loud Bob because at least he's continued being an entrepreneur. His whole thing now is the, well, you know, he, I don't know which sports team, but you know, he owns a bunch of hotels. So, I mean, if you were to just take some time to look, and I have the tips in the back of the book, if you were to take the time to look, and he does at least invest in, in our causes and, and gives to HBCUs, and he does his part, um, I'm sure, much more than the Hilton family does. Um, for the black community. He's a great role model for our kids to be entrepreneurs. So he, he at least is in another vein and is building up um, the community in the hotel space. Uh, okay, okay. You, you, can, you can point him out for him. Right, so before integration, we, we did have 
uh, tons of businesses. And actually, when we started to fight for um, integration, there was a, an equally vehement response um, in terms of terrorism and violence with our business owners. There's a whole uh, section in the book about economic terrorism. So that's, if I, if I were to be honest, that's kind of the first part of the storm. They, uh, they started to stifle black business growth. I mean, most of the lynchings happened with black business owners. Right, oh yeah, parties, I can't say that the parties have stayed the same throughout time, so I hate to use one label or the other, but yes, they did, they, they were instrumental in helping us get franchised in the first place. Um, you've had your hand well done. Hi. Slow to pay. Slow to pay. And, um, you know, they expected everything at a really, really, really deep discount. And she was, her consulting firm is consistently the cheapest. Right. If I, if I were to use the word system, it would be in the supplier diversity space. There is the way supplier and vendor diversity works for black firms. It, it has to be intentionally to displace us. So the, the whole, you know, there's the mission statements and you have to go through all this crazy certification process just to even get in the door. And, and, and then once you do, you have to be able to achieve this ridiculous amount of scale because it, it's not designed to be inclusive. Basically, supplier diversity just means if something new comes up, we'll let you compete with this firm we've been doing business with for 30 years that's huge and can offer discounts and we go golfing with them every Thursday. But if something comes up, we'll let you compete with them. We know you can't. We're not going to help you. We're not going to force them to do some tier two. That's where we, we, they make their suppliers do business with you. All that stuff, all those creative solutions to recruit more, to, to have maybe three consulting firms come together and, and spread out some of the, the burden, all these things that they can be doing, no one does it. It is the hardest in the B2B space for a black business to make it. There are so few examples, and what they do is they'll find, like, like my paper company, that South Coast Paper, I love to tell, you know, I tell people go to Office Max and look for South Coast Paper. That, that com there's, there's maybe 50 South Coast Paper type companies working within all of corporate America. It's just absolutely insane, the, the, the corporate America space. They, they do, on average, I think it's .000 something percent business with black businesses. Um, and and so, so the problem is that there's, I don't have a good answer of my, I've, I've put a whole bunch of energy into the supplier diversity space. We do a lot of research there. I, I work with the councils and all that kind of stuff to make these systemic changes so that those businesses who are qualified and deserve the work, um, we can give them a fair opportunity to succeed. I, I think that's one part of the problem, but they've not only not been able to compete with large corporations looking to diversify suppliers and maybe not diversify, but also with small businesses in our communities that need consulting services. Like, she put in a bid for evaluation for a, a company
Oh, or, yeah, or all that days. stuff. Higher standards and want the hookup. I mean, it's it's both extremes. It's just it makes it's, it hard for people like me and you who went driving at schools and want to get involved to I know. really get involved. So like, just where is the middle? Right. Like, it's what my. What do we do to make it known that we're available? We want to get involved, but we can't do everything for free, and we're actually better than the free services that are out there. It, it is. It's totally exactly. What I mean, you wouldn't have that problem with my business if I had a business. I mean, I'm not a business, but there there are more consumers like us uh, now who are willing. Some people call it a black tax. Who will even spend more money just to engage um, a business owner like you, top quality, or, or like your friend, top quality, who wants to reinvest in the community. I, I, all of these dynamics, all of these psychoses that exist in our community. Yes. They're exploring the book, and they're the reason that grocery store, that beautiful grocery store that you saw in that video, he's dead. He lasted a year. There is no other, will never be probably, a black-owned grocery store with a coffee shop, a deli, fresh meats, produce from all over the world. He did everything, gave his life to this, invested all of his savings, had left corporate, did this, and we didn't support him. I put him all over the news. And to this day, people are like, oh, what happened to that black grocery store? And it's like, did you ever go? It's, it is, it's this horribly sad, sad story. That wine shop you saw, that shoe stop, all of them just as wonderful as your business. They're all dead. I know that's not the end. That's not the, the happy ending we want to have to this story. But it's not just how we lost all these great businesses we used to have. It's how we're killing the top quality ones we have now. I think she's cutting me um, for time. We got one more. I think you have been, you've had in the light green shirt. You've, so let's just try to keep it short. So you're you're asking Right. Right. How careful? Okay, I see what you're saying. Right. Simple as being at your doctor's appointment one time because it's his time is money. Right. Right. Simple. The, the only, the, the worst part of it is I think that the most we get out of the system of commerce is just immediate gratification. We think that the purpose of making money is so that we can buy something that's going to outwardly demonstrate our worth. So that's the, only, that's the, the, the that base level, infantile level of, 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 of understanding. Instead of thinking how I do, it was a pain in the butt getting to the dry cleaner this morning, I could have easily gone to Sun Cleaners, which is right at my corner. My kids play right in front of it. But I drove the three miles because I know in my head i got to keep him in business because he is in front of his store and people hang out in front of his store. This, that's the kind of vision I want for my community. So I think like that. I'm, like I say, conscious consumer. I think like that. Most black people now don't think like that. All, the best we can hope for in this experiment, and this is the same kind of challenges we had in the 50s and 60s, is that we can rally those like-minded and like-situated folks who do think and understand like we do. We can't give up hope and say that we don't feel this way, we can't win, that, that dry cleaner is never going to open a second location, because then we'll just fail. We have to believe that there are a lot more people like you and me who do understand capitalism and who do understand that nothing's going to change if it doesn't start from the consumers and the businesses coming together. It can't the trickle down, the government, all that kind of stuff. That's never going to work in the, the, what's going on. And I think, the, I think a perfect example, the west side of Baltimore, it's just not going to happen. I'm so sorry. I know we're, we're short on time. Um,
talking a little bit as we um, sign books? Yeah. Okay. Sit here. Okay. Okay. Um, I don't think we ever got the, the credit card thing set up. Um, did most of you want to do credit cards? This, you can probably still do it, but I might need to go back there for a second.